Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Culture, where we talk about the things in Western civilization that really matter. And the person we're talking about who matters and we're doing a series on at the moment is the great um, independent director, Robert Altman, who made some of the most interesting and challenging movies of his era. One of the things that Altman did, and we talked about last time with his seminal, the greatest anti-Western ever made, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, is that he would take a step break them down bit by bit, exposing the realities beneath them, and then would care less about plot and more about the ecosystem. Not one character, but the jungle as a whole. And he continued down this road with the long goodbye of 1973. And here we're running into our old friend Raymond Chandler. Uh, in the culture section, we did five of Chandler's novels, which was incredibly well received. So I think I thought we'd look at the cinema version. One of the things to say about The Long Goodbye, in my view, is that it's an interesting failure. And that's not to write it off. Um, let me put it this way. I think my book, Ethical Realism, is an interesting failure. I think The Beatles' White Album is an interesting failure. And what do I mean by this? Well, in the case of The Beatles' White Album, what it was was a double album that would have made one of the greatest single albums ever made, but at this point, the band's dynamics, power dynamics were breaking down. And so rather than the elephant in the room, the George Harrison wanted more songs on the record as he grew more confident in his songwriting and ability. And that John Lennon wanted out of the band as soon as possible. So you have a breakdown in the original Lennon-McCartney dominance, that bipolar duopoly. And instead, you have Harrison, an emerging power, trying to do more and being shunted away. Because Lennon and particularly McCartney would say, look, we have the greatest songwriting duo in modern history. Your stuff's good, but not that good. And so Harrison grew more and more frustrated. And we have John Lennon looking for the exit even before he found Yoko. Uh, I'm no fan of Yoko Ono's abilities. And certainly I think she manipulated John and was involved in getting him addicted to heroin, which is no good. But to say she's responsible for the band breaking up gets it wrong. He was already heading for the door. And she he was looking for. He was already on his way out. But rather than deal with all this, the Beatles chose to ignore it and then just said about the White Album, everybody put everything they want on the record. And so it's a very up and down record with a lot of fantastic stuff back in the USSR by McCartney leaps to mind. Um, but it could have been one of the greatest single albums ever made. But to deal with band dynamics, they let it be a somewhat over the top double album, still a good record an interesting record, an adventurous record, but not a perfect record. And that's what I think, 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 failure. As for ethical realism, I mean, I think there's a similar dynamic. Anatole Levin and I wrote a book uh, coming out of our martyrdom over being against Iraq that I'm very proud of. There's a lot in that book that really stands up well. We explain ethical realism, the ideological tenets behind our view that neoconservatism isn't the future. And I've used that realist book and built on it for the rest of my career. I think it was very creative, challenging, and interesting. But frankly, our writing styles didn't mesh. And the other both, 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 both peacocks used to having our own way. And so at certain points, we'd give way when we shouldn't have to the other to try to be nice. And at other points, we'd fight and end up fighting to a draw and compromising when we shouldn't have. I can still tell you in that book who wrote what paragraph. The writing styles didn't mesh. I adopt the kind of Hemingway, Faulkner, um, Scott Fitzgerald, lean, muscular, moving, uh, moving verbs, whereas Anatole's much more passive Baroque 
Oxford educated uh, kind of Baroque background. And it's both styles are perfectly fine, but boy, they didn't mesh together. And I can still tell you who wrote what bit, my muscular American prose versus his more static Oxford educated, look at me, look at me, look at me now prose. Let's add an extra clause. And it drove me mad. And I think he felt the same way. It's still a very good book. I look back on our collaboration with great fondness I politically to put forward an, an alternative to neoconservatism at the time in a positive way, but it didn't really mesh. And that's what I mean by that being an interesting failure. And now we move on to The Long Goodbye, which I also have great affection for. I love the book, as you know, and think it's probably um, Raymond Chandler's best, its most fully formed work. But the movie version doesn't entirely work. I mean, for one thing, Altman had everyone ad lib. And as he said at the time, Sterling Hayden, who played uh, Roger Wade, the alcoholic writer, who was, of course, um, uh, emblematic of Chandler himself, his most personal character, that, that Roger Wade, as the great Sterling Hayden, a fantastic movie star, was wonderful in many things. I mean, one thinks of him um, in Dr. Strange, Love Kubrick's Dr. Strange. But, 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 but at this point, it's late in the game. And ironically, uh, Hayden plays Roger Wade as a Hemingway character, another friend of ours from the culture. He's big drinking, big talking, flailing around. And the reason that this worked was that, as Altman said at the time, uh, Hayden was drinking heavily and doing a lot of pot. And so he wasn't going to remember the script. And so Altman always favored ad-libbing. And some of the ad-libbing works brilliantly, and some of it very much does not. Elliot Gould, too. Some of the great ad-libs in movie history are from Gould here. I think with, 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 with his cat is one of the great kind of ad-lib scenes ever in the movies. But it's very, very up and down, as ad-libbing will be. And as a result, the movie has a very uneven, unfinished, rough-hewn quality. Um, it's not perfect, but it's a very interesting failure. Because coming on from McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which was this fantastic Annie Western, um, Peter Bogdanovich, the hot director at the time, who had been set to make this movie, backed out and instead said, you should get Robert Alton. Uh, because he liked McCabe and Mrs. Miller um, and was a cinephile and, and, and a history of cinema and saw what he was doing. And what Altman did was take the, the, the film noir detective story genre and turn it on its head in exactly the way he turned the Western on its head in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And that's the really interesting creative part. As he said about Philip Marlowe, that Elliot, Elliot Gould's Marlowe versus the definitive Marlowe, of Humphrey Bogart and The Big Sleep, which I think is the greatest film noir movie ever made, what he wanted to do was he called it Rip Van Marlowe, that he took um, 1953 Humphrey Bogart kind of version of Marlowe, and he moved him as a piece into 1973 to see how he'd fare to make some satirical comments about the time that he lived in, 1973, which Altman didn't like very much. It shows and it makes for a great movie. So again, he takes the the way he goes about subvar is by leaving it as it is by making Marlowe absolutely as he would be in 1953, and then updating him, throwing him in Rip Van Marlowe as in Rip Van Winkle. He wakes up 20 years later, and he has to deal with early 1970s hedonistic, self-obsessed, narcissistic California, and that's where the humor and the tension really work. At the time, Gould's Marlowe wasn't liked because it was compared to Humphrey Bogart. And boy, it wasn't Bogart at all. I mean, Altman insisted that Gould play Marlowe like a loser, 
that this guy is out of time and is seen as a joke because he believes in things like friendship and loyalty. And again, this is shown in this beautiful opening scene where Marlowe has a cat. And this, again, was not in the, in the book that Marlowe never had any pets. For his free time, he would play chess, as we knew, very solitary. Here he's trying to as a cat. I love this. As I have five, as you know. And Marlowe is trying to convince his cat. He goes to the store to buy him food. The cat doesn't have any food. It's late at night. Marlowe's just finished a case. He sees his stone neighbors next door doing naked yoga in the middle of the night. He kind of just bats an eye, asks them about the cat. The cat's inside. So he goes to the store, and they don't have the cat food the cat likes. So Marlowe goes through Gould goes through this lovely, elaborate scene where he takes the cat food from this, the inferior cat food, according to the cat, puts it into the label of the cat food the cat likes, out, 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 and the cat, and I can tell you this from experience, the cat's not buying. The cat doesn't believe it. But Marlowe's doing this because he cares about the feelings of the cat. And that sets us up for the Rip Van Marlowe image that Altman is playing with. Marlowe is out of time in more ways than he drives the old car, and humorously, he chain smokes. And why this was funny was that in early 1970s California, the health craze was just coming in, being healthy, jogging, eating health food. This was just coming in. And so Marlowe, of course, from the stories, he takes chain, 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 chain smoking, as Bogart did. Of course, cancer was to claim Bogart early because of the chain smoking. But here it's humorous because he's chain smoking. Uh, he's wearing this trench coat in the heat in California. Everybody else is scantily clad, eating tofu, doing yoga. And he's trying to make sense of this all, of this cultural change, which is not for the better. But what we realize from the cat scene right up front is that Marlowe has other qualities from the 1950s that aren't in the hedonistic, self-obsessed 1970s. He's loyal. He cares about his cat. He wants the cat to feel well and do well. And this is all shown rather than said, which is movie making at its best, about this brilliant scene where he puts the bad cat food into the good label and the cat doesn't buy, but he's willing to make the effort. Again, Marlowe is seen, or Gould's Marlowe is seen, as a moral and decent man adrift in a self-obsessed society, early 1970s California. And and Gould got paid. He'd made MASH and become a star. He was, of course, the husband of Barbara Streisand, but he was a, a fully-fledged movie star because of Altman's MASH. But he'd had a rough go now. He, he'd been in several movies that hadn't gotten made. He was bickering with everyone inside, and people were wondering about his sanity. And in fact, to make the long goodbye, he had to take a psychological test proving he was sane. Uh, he was sane enough, and his Marlowe is superlative precisely because he's not trying to copy Humphrey Bogart like so many others had. He goes the other way. And that's why this movie is a very, very interesting movie. Also, uh, Mar um, Altman did a very interesting thing. He hired the woman um, who, who had legendarily worked again on The Big Sleep, Lee Brackett, who had been the scriptwriter, the screenwriter for The Big Sleep, made in 1946. And her co-writer was the legendary author William Faulkner, Nobel Prize winner in literature, invented Faulknerian, a whole style of writing, the inner psychological novel. And they had written The Big Sleep. And so he took her and explained that he wanted this Rip Van Marlowe approach. And so there are a lot of changes from the incredibly convoluted plot of The Long Goodbye. And here we see where really Raymond Chandler and, Alt and, and, and Robert Altman meet. Neither of them give a damn about the plot. They care about char 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 characterization, ideas, dialogue, 
tone. All this matters to them immensely, but the plot does not. Famously, as Lee Brackett told the story, and I mentioned it in, in, our, in our look at Raymond Chandler, at one point she and Faulkner didn't understand in the big sleep what happened to one character who had murdered him. And so they called up a drunken Chandler who said, actually, I don't know. It doesn't matter. He didn't even remember who had killed them. And when you watch The Big Sleep, you do lose track of who killed who and why. And you just go with that. It's beside the point. All to the ground, Chandler style, because he cares about all these things as well. The ecosystem, the jungle that all these animals reside in, rather than exactly what happened to any individual animal in that jungle. And so the styles, in an odd way work between Raymond Chandler and Robert Altman. It's about the tone, the mood, the idea. And so he does transplant that that one of the qualities, and he, he takes Marlowe in full and moves him up 20 years, Rip Van Marlowe. He believes in friendship. He believes in loyalty. And this makes him seem like a loser in 1970s um, California. Of course, the joke is on 1970s California, according to Altman, and not on Marlowe. These are qualities worth cherish cherishing. We see this right away from Marlowe's affection for his cat. But of course, there's more than the cat. And Lee Brackett took the convoluted Long Goodbye, Chandler's greatest novel, and made some significant changes. And then Altman rewrote her rewrites. So it's a line, 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 but it entirely works. And I love when you take art and make it something different, like Wes Mitchell and I did uh, with the Godfather Doctrine. We took the great, um, iconic, maybe the greatest movie ever made, The Godfather, and then the sequel. And we used it to explain foreign policy. You take a piece of art and you make it something different. And that's what Altman did by bringing in Lee Brackett, emblematic of the big sleep in the earlier film noir era. He takes this great novel and he changes it uh, while still retaining its artistic adventurousness. In the news story, uh, Marlowe uh, is reached out to by his friend Terry Lennox when he's done feeding the cat. Terry Lennox shows up, his friend in his apartment, and asks for a ride to Tijuana because he's in trouble. And Marlowe notices that there are scratches on his face, doesn't say anything, and drops him off at the Mexican border. On instance, the police who arrest him when he doesn't explain what he was doing with Lennox, and he's then told that Lennox is accused of killing his wealthy wife, uh, Sylvia. He's jailed for three days and then released when it's told that indeed Lennox has killed himself down in Mexico. Marlowe doesn't believe this, that either Lennox killed Sylvia or himself. Again, his loyalty, his knight-errant quality, as we said about Marlowe in, 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 the, in the Chandler stories. And this, and this works for the 1970s. In the every man for himself, there's no order, there's no anything, there's just co 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 code as you try as a knight to restore order in the chaotic feudalism of 1970s California. Uh, he runs quickly, though after this, he, he's hired by Eileen Wade, the stunning Nina Van Pallant, uh, who was quite famous at the time. She'd been the mistress to a man who'd faked the autobiography of Howard Hughes for a great deal of money. And so she was notorious as the mistress, Nina Van Pallant. And she certainly could act, but as, as Roger Ebert put it, she did more than acting. She inhabited autobiography, which is what noir is all about, of a Malibu Beach temptress. Blonde, impassive, alluring, but distant. And she's fantastic in the movie. She hires him to find her missing husband, Roger Wade, again played by the great Sterling Hayden, a Hemingway-like figure who's, been, who's gone to dry out. Um, she learns of, uh, Marlowe in the course of doing this, learns that the Wades knew the Lennoxes, and he wonders about this. He gets to know Roger Wade, but it's revealed that Roger 
drowns himself in the ocean. Highly unstable. Uh, he tells Marla that his wife's having an affair without describing with who, and he runs into the ocean, the Pacific, and drowns himself. Um, however, Eileen tells a very different story. She tells Marlowe that Roger had been having an affair with Sylvia Lennox, and uh, so basically she's saying he killed himself because he killed Sylvia. Case closed. But Marlowe, again, his antenna still working, instead he goes to Mexico and takes the $5,000 note with James Madison on the front, by the way, to my interest, uh, and bribes the Mexican officials with it, the policeman who'd said that his friend Lennox had committed suicide. And instead, they tell him that he had been, they had been paid, been bribed, to fake Terry's suicide. Uh, Marlowe finds Terry in a Mexican villa, and he admits to killing Sylvia um, because he was having an affair with Eileen. It was just the opposite of what she said again. So Nina Van Pallant, Eileen Wade, becomes yet again a femme fatale in the old noir tradition brilliantly. She's beautiful and every word out of her mouth is a lie. It isn't that her husband drowned because he killed Sylvia because of his affair with Sylvia. Instead, he drowned because of her affair with Terry. And then Marlowe confronts his friend Terry at a villa. Says, Marlowe, you're a loser. Nobody cares. I now have an even richer girlfriend than my wife. You can never prove this. I didn't mean to kill her. She got angry about the affair, and so I, I, on the spur of the moment, committed manslaughter. Nobody cares. Let it go. And for the first time in the entire movie, rather than bemusedly observing the hedonism, the selfishness, the vacuousness, um, the lack of honor, the lack of, in an existential way, making your own code, observing this in a bemused way, Marlowe hearing Terry say, he killed Sylvia, and worse that nobody cares, he finally acts. And it's a dramatic ending, this burst of violence that's not in the, not in the novel. It's a dramatic ending to the story. It ends on a real high note. And it all, weirdly enough, the plot works because it's not about plot. It's about the idea of honor, loyalty, and friendship. And in an existential chaotic world, being the knight errant that Marlowe is, rather than laughing at Marlowe, he's the only one I laughed at. He's the only one with a code based on love, loyalty, and friendship. And so he acts when Terry mocks him. Uh, again, there are a lot of deviations from the novel, but it entirely works in that way. He once, as he said, Marlowe Altman said, he wanted Marlowe to now be seen as a loser because times have changed. And ironically, that's not a comment on Mar Marlowe. It's a comment on 1970s California. And so that, that really worked well. Again, with the ad-libbing, it's very up and very down. And at the time, nobody liked it because, as they pointed out, Marlowe isn't Humphrey Bogart. And whereas Altman might have screamed, that's precisely the point. It's to look at the difference in time between the 1950s and the 1970s. But at the time, the movie did poorly and was poorly received by critics. Now it's considered a classic on Rotten Tomatoes, the Bible of an, of an aggregator of movie reviews. It has a 95% fresh rate classic status um, of, of the genre. And I think it is. I mean, it's uneven. It's up and down. Not all the ad-libbing works. But boy, is it an interesting failure. And it also fits within uh, basically the overall arc of what Robert Altman is about. Because he retains faith with the code of a private eye. And this is what matters to him. The code that, that, that is the thread running through all of Raymond Chandler's stories. 
of how do you become an honest man in a corrupt and dishonorable world. They take this basic noir concept philosophically. He updates it to the early 1970s, which Altman certainly didn't like. And again, it's about mood, style, language, character, and not very much about the plot. Though the end, it all comes together in one glorious moment, which makes the film worth, 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 worth your time. So I commend to you this interesting failure, The Long Goodbye from 1973 and Robert Altman. So please do give it a look and we will move on from here. Our next culture will be looking at Robert Altman's classic, not an interesting failure, but a triumph in every way, Nashville, where he, it, the, it's like diving. The degree of difficulty is the greatest. There are 20 or 30 characters that come in and out of the story and somehow amidst the chaos of that ecosystem, boy, does it work. One of the great classics of all time. I just, as I'm rewatching these with our community as we go, but we will move on to Nashville, probably the best Altman film. Um, and the one that, that really does stay with you as his, his ecosystem above all ethos takes charge. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this, The Culture. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. So many of you have. We're at an all-time high in subscriptions. And for those of you who have, please do give the $70 we're asking, um, which allows me to take time out from the book, the PR, the business, the dang, 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 and spend time with our community. $70 works out to one cappuccino. It lets us get our message out there, both about realism and why Western civilization is entirely worth defending. I think $70 is a small price to pay for us to look at these very big ideas and to have fun doing so. Also, the book. Uh, I just did a late night interview that we're going to try to put on the site, I think John said, later. Um, with people in Chicago, and the book's number came tumbling down. It's nibbling at the edges of the top 40, so this is very, in the United States, it's already been there in the UK, so this is very, very exciting indeed, as the book heads triumphantly up the charts. And so I will keep you involved in that, but we're doing interview after interview, local TV and radio all over the country, reaching out to our Jeffersonian, Jacksonian base. And again, in a couple weeks, we will be off to New York for the salon dinner with the Koch Foundation, a big meeting uh, where I present the book formally to them. We will go down to Washington, D.C., talk to people in the Trump campaign, and also talk to the Speaker of the House, um, his staff, and senior Hill staffers about the book and why it matters and why realism can once again change history. So exciting days ahead, and I'll do a daily uh, update and diary on what goes on as we hit the road for this vital trip to New York and Washington. But the book, the numbers are heading exactly where we want. So I did an interview at midnight last night. I'm very tired, but I'm very happy. Very happy to share the culture with you. And on we go.